This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Florence Fabricant is without a doubt one of America's most important and prolific journalists. As a food and wine writer for the New York Times for decades, she is considered an authority on all things food, new products, trends, chefs, and restaurants. She is a powerhouse. Florence is also the author of 13 cookbooks. Her newest is the Ladies' Village Improvement Society cookbook, published next month by Rizzoli. During the summers, you can find Florence in East Hampton. She conducts the popular program at Guild Hall called Stirring the Pot, where she interviews the biggest names in the food world. I've known Florence for 40 years, but I did not know the story she shared with us today on One Woman Kitchen. Funny, engaging, delightful. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Florence as much as I did. In the vast culinary landscape we share, we are all carving out a place for ourselves. Each of us, in our own way, is a one-woman kitchen. I'm Roseanne Gold, and welcome to my kitchen. Florence Fabricant, I am so thrilled to have you here today. I was really excited about seeing you. We've known each other over 40 years. I think we were both part of the first food revolution, I call it, in the 70s. And now I think we're part of a second food revolution. Maybe there had been more. I'm not sure. But I do want to say that I read the understatement of the century today when I read your bio. It says that you are a food and wine writer for the New York Times. And I have to say, it just made me smile because you are the food and wine writer of the New York Times. And Florence, there are times that I pick up the Wednesday food section and think, you are the New York Times. (laughs) Welcome. Your career is legendary. Well, it's a delight to be here. And the fact that it's a casual conversation, the only downside is that uh, there was nobody to do my hair and put on eye makeup. (laughs) And that's why I love doing podcasts, you see. (laughs) I hate to worry about the the rest of this stuff. But in addition to being a food and wine writer for the New York Times, you have written 13 cookbooks. You write for many other publications, I think mostly about travel. But Florence, you were also a restaurant critic for a while. You do the food and wine pairings. You are an arbiter of culinary taste. You have traveled all over the world, launched a thousand careers, not to mention 10,000 products. And I think you truly are the embodiment of a one-woman kitchen. (laughs) (laughs) I guess in a way, yeah. I honestly can't think of anyone else who has done all that you've done. And I'm not sure it's repeatable in the future, but we'll talk about that. Anyway, which part of it seems to be most meaningful to you right now? You know, I've said, I've been at this for decades, and I've said that I'll keep at it as long as I'm not bored. Mm. And 
what still excites me is the, and particularly now young people, but I'll get back to that in a way, but also how people are always discovering stuff. And while I'm not vegan, to see what's going on with plant-based dining and food products, some of which I wouldn't give you two cents for, but some of which are eye-opening uh, and worthwhile, uh, has me pretty amazed. I write about very few of them because I think a lot of them are copycat. A lot of them, a lot of what is going on with this wellness stuff I find irritating because even the next new knife that comes across my desk is going to tell me that, A, it's sustainable, and B, it'll make me feel great and save my marriage. And I'm tired of that. You think? <laughs> Might ruin my marriage. <laughs> well, I know people uh, turn to your column first thing on, on Wednesdays to see really what is new. And you have two columns. One is uh, the front burner, which right. really is mostly about products. Yes. And the New other products, events, sometimes that books. Kind of thing, right. Yeah. But you know, it's not just a question because I know you and how discerning you are. You must receive or hear about, I don't know, hundreds of things every week. So you're not just supplying the news. You are actually creating the news by carefully choosing. I mean, that that column is curated. And you have your own uh, ideas about what people really should be buying, looking at, knowing knowing about. Yeah. Well, there are certain restrictions for items that appear in that column uh, knowing, I mean, everything I do, I do with the deep knowledge that I am representing the New York Times. I'm not representing Florence Fabricant, mm. despite what people may think. I am representing the New York Times. And let me tell you, that is a heavy responsibility. Oh, yes. And the last thing I want to see happen is to have disappointed readers, which is why I keep my standards high. Mm. And which is why I ask people the kinds of questions I do, because publicists spin their pitches pretty much, and you have to kind of read through the ferns and find what's really worth growing. And mm, nice. um, it's not easy, and I get besieged, and I get products over the transom. I can't tell you how many times I come home from a weekend and there is a bulging package of spoiled <laughs> cheese at my front door that I never expected. Oh, dear. And there's no way to um, kind of control any of that, right? People do well, know where to send things. If people pitch a product to me, my first, my first question is, is it available? Is it available retail? Because I don't want to write about something where I've got to send somebody off to eat a $150 meal in order to taste a certain spirit or yes, ingredient. Absolutely. That's number one. And also, uh, is it really new? And I can't tell you how often publicists have said, well, it's a new client for us. And really new is not a new package. It's not a new color. I mean, it's genuinely new. And when did it first go on the market? And can I ask you about it? And very often, they don't, you know, it's not that hard to figure out what I need 
by just reading a couple weeks' worth of columns. It's not that hard to know if you're telling me about a new restaurant that I will need to know the address. What's frustrating for me and a big time waster is I've got to do a lot of scut work that I shouldn't have to, but I do. I don't have an assistant. We have a fact checker in the department, but I don't have an assistant. You know, I was going to ask you that, Florence, because it seems almost impossible that you don't, let alone a team of people. The Just the, the sheer amount of work that you turn out every week, plus you are recipe developing for the wine pairing um, and writing cookbooks and, and uh, having to be out a about towns to see what's going well, the on. With a subscription to the opera and God knows what else. Well, exactly. You are just a total Renaissance woman in so many ways, in addition to being a mother and a grandmother, which we can certainly talk about. Usually I start the show with going back a little bit and taking a deep dive into childhood. So let's let's go there. And um, I don't know where you grew up, and I don't know who was in your kitchen, and whether anything happened in your childhood that was responsible for your life and food. I've always been interested in food. Uh, I can tell you that I remember I had to be younger than four because I don't think my brother had been born yet. (laughs) I can remember when we would go out with family for Chinese food on a Sunday night, To me, one of the most important things was how much soy sauce I would put in my egg drop soup. It had to be the perfect color. (laughs) And if I couldn't get it the perfect color, if I put in too much, I would not be happy. Mm. I'm still that way about coffee. When I add milk or half and half, it has to hit a certain color. Otherwise, I'm not happy. (laughs) Oh, that's fascinating. And the other thing I'll say (laughs) is that my parents told me, I don't remember how long ago, that when I was three or four, they had a party in the apartment. And This was in New York City? This was in the Bronx. And they put all of the dirty glassware in the bathtub. And then after the party was over, they went into my room and couldn't find me. And they went into the bathroom, and they saw that I had been sipping out of the glass, you know, the dregs of wine and whatnot, and was sort of passed out on the bathroom floor. But it's sort of symptomatic, because I can remember when I was 12, my father started serving me alcohol, because he said, you are going to be with people, and you are going to be served alcohol, and I want you to know how it feels, and how it tastes, and how to react to it. I was very smart. I did not go binging when I got to college because I'd been already drinking for, what, (laughs) five, six years. Talk about bathtub gin, right? Yeah. Florence, that's really a priceless story. So we have your father to thank in a way for your exquisite palate and and drinking earlier. Let me say my parents were foodies. Uh, And what was the name before? We didn't use foodies up until fairly recently. I guess they were gourmets. Right. Yeah, Wasn't that I would kind say of the gourmet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, new restaurant in Manhattan. They their lives. Dis- we lived in the Bronx until I was about seven, and then we moved to Westchester. But my father's office was in Manhattan, and the whole focus of the family was really Manhattan. My mother was very chic. She would buy designer samples from these two women who had a little shop on the second floor on Madison Avenue. She would shop at William Greenberg's. She, 
I'm telling you, very Manhattan-oriented. We went to the theater all the time, and a new restaurant opened. My parents were there. Fabulous. And I grew up going to great restaurants in New York. My mother was a fabulous cook. Mm. And so the whole food thing was part of my life, even though it was not a career. But at the same time, like my story about the egg drop soup, yes, <laughs> I have what I would call palate memory that is really excellent. I can still visualize and almost taste meals or foods that I had growing up as a young woman uh, and on various occasions, and it stayed with me. Not everyone has that, but you certainly I have a reputation has that. for it, mm-hmm. and it's exquisite, Florence, and that's why I think people really innately know that about you, so they really can trust what you say, uh, whether it's about products or, or restaurants. But you've had really this remarkable, very global career, because I know you started traveling and you've met every important chef in the world and have probably eaten every great restaurant. But to go back a little bit, because I think going to Smith and then majoring in French also helped inform this, you know, well, gorgeous Well, living in France, palette. I spent a year in France while I was at Smith. So what did you major in at Smith? I know you were Phi Beta Kappa, but did you major in French at Smith I as well? I did major in French because I could count my entire junior year. I was a very focused college student. I decided I would take courses where I could learn stuff that I didn't think I would learn on my own. Hmm. I would re I would take courses, literature courses that covered books like Ulysses that I didn't think I could easily tackle on my own. I wanted to learn. And the result was that my entire junior year spent in France counted toward the French major, which meant my senior year, I didn't really have any, I didn't have to take any French but one course, and I spent the rest of the time playing (laughs) and dabbling in the kinds of, I took an Alfred Kazin American Lit course, stuff like that, that I just would enjoy intellectually. And um, that's what I did. Fantastic. And also explains so much because really to know about food is to know about everything. It is not just what's on your plate in front of you. It's to have a world perspective and and curiosity. So Florence, when we come back, I want to hear a little bit about some of those delicious dishes your mother made when you grew up, and then to talk more about uh, your new cookbook coming out and some of the other things you're up to. And the gate to the garden of fulfilled design is reached by a road. And here's a cooking tip to share. Actually, there are two. These from my guest, Florence Fabricant. If you have a potato ricer, you know, for making mashed potatoes, it's the best tool for squeezing the liquid out of cooked spinach or cooked greens. Whole spinach leaves will not go through the holes of the ricer, but the liquid will. And so you throw everything in there, squeeze, and you're done. That's tip number one. Another tip is I found, not for the clam recipe that I discussed, because you want the juices, but if I'm baking oysters, for example, or clams with a breadcrumb topping, 
the best way to do that is not crumpled foil or rock salt or any of that. You take your madeleine pan and cover it with foil and use the madeleine recesses to bake your shellfish. From Florence's kitchen to yours, give them a try and pass them along. Florence, what were some of the dishes that your mother made growing up? What memories do you have? What memories do I have? My mother made fantastic chopped liver, and I still make it. And I don't think anybody makes it as well. Is there a secret ingredient? I think it's a balance of ingredients. My mother was never afraid to add salt. Uh, I have a very salty palate. I think of myself as the anchovy queen. (laughs) I have low blood pressure, so I don't worry about it. I know a lot of people do, and uh, I feel for them. Um, (laughs) What else? Uh, She would make salmon. She would put whole filet of beef, you know, like a Chateaubriand, Mm -hmm. on the barbecue grill. She made, she baked lamb shanks with tomatoes. Uh, It was a dish my father adored. She also baked cut into squares, and I've never done this one, um, lamb riblets Hmm. cut into like three-inch squares, each one topped with a slice of orange and a slice of lemon. Wow. And uh, she would, I guess, broil them. She would also make for my father what he called Italian steak, because he loved Delmonico's, and my mother hated it. (laughs) So I would have to go with him. Oh, oh, but Florence, but what a beautiful memory that is. Slathered in mm-hmm. olive oil and garlic and parsley, my mother would make for him every mm. now and then, which is how he remembered the Delmonico steak. As I say, my parents went out to eat a lot. Yeah. A lot. I'm hearing a lot of joy and love around food. Yeah. My mother also set a gorgeous table. Mm. Once a year, she would have some woman come with sample tablecloths and napkins, and she would replenish her her table linens on a regular basis. She almost sounds like an early day Martha Stewart, you know? Well, Maybe your mom could have had her own show and also <laughs> including great fashion statements, right? Very, very fascinating, Florence. So you got married to Richard, a lawyer. You had two children. Um, and one day, you were, I think you were living in East Hampton. Well, I was kind of between jobs, shall we speak, before um, my children were born, I worked in advertising. I worked in market research at Compton Advertising, and that was really in the Mad Men day. And I'm still kind of resentful that nobody made a real pass at me. (laughs) Yeah, that's sort of the opposite of the Me Too movement, huh? (laughs) My best friends were gay guys. (laughs) And three martini lunches. And we did have martini lunches. In fact, with one of them... Once a month, I would go, we would go, this guy, John, and I would go and eat lunch at a really great restaurant, like Brussels or Pavillon, something Mm. like that. We did that regularly, which was great fun. Um, But I learned a lot doing market research, particularly because the agency handled a lot of food products for Procter & Gamble. But that was the day when 
if they were going to photograph a Duncan, the results of using a dunk, box of Duncan Hines cake mix, yeah. they would make the cake with two boxes of mix. Oh, for the photo. Well, they can't do that anymore. No, There's they can't truth do that advertising. anymore. They can't use talcum powder as Brand X on the scrubbing the bathtub. But those days they did. Yes. It was kind of fascinating. And But I didn't want to continue there after my kids were born. I thought about going to law school. Richard kind of discouraged me. Um, and I applied for a graduate program in teaching at Hunter that didn't require taking education courses. It was mainly practice teaching. And I was accepted and then it lost its funding. So I was back out in East Hampton for the summer with two little kids and no thought of what, uh, no idea of what I was going to do. And I was the one. I think it's important for people to actually know that and hear that. For people who love food and wanted to get into the business, that there is a moment, right? Yeah, you make well, a decision yeah, how was, to do it. It was, turns out, it was a hell of a lot easier in my case because <laughs> I was the one, we had a bridge game with ladies in the neighborhood, and I was the one that always seemed to know who had the best tomatoes out on a card table in <laughs> their front yard or who. Where you would go to buy the best potato salad or what you would do with a piece of weak fish and so forth. <laughs> and so I, it just came to me out of the blue to suggest a food column for the local newspaper. And that was the start of my career. I did a weekly column and within six months I was getting assignments from the Times and never looked back. And, today, and what year was that, Lawrence? Because this is really a remarkable story. And today, if people say, you know, how did you get started? How can I get started? Nobody can do what I did exactly. I did it. And the only thing I can say to them is do it. Find the outlet you can and do it and hope for the best. And today the outlet might be online, though, right? It there, could I think be that's online. where the opportunities might be. But the thing be. is that it, unlike when I got started, Nobody wanted to be a food writer back then. Isn't that hard to believe? It was not a career choice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there were a few select people, and of course, you thought the world of Julia Child and worshipped Craig Claiborne and so forth and so on, but it was not a blog a minute. No. And I think it's much tougher today. There's a lot of gee whiz, misinformation. What bothers me is how little homework some people do and how, I mean, I know where the bodies are buried and it's not hard to find out anymore. But these young people who think they've discovered, you know, reinvented the wheel, they haven't. Do a little digging and you'll see that there's very little that's brand, 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 brand new about what you're writing. And I, I kind of... And maybe it's partly having a really good education and knowing how to research a paper and ask the right questions, but I'm amazed at the lack of homework on the part of a lot of young people who think just because they can cook a dish or two or four or ten, they can have an audience, and very often they do. Yes, but that's true. But the other thing that writing for the Times taught me and taught me very early on is not to compromise. 
not to sell your soul for a product. I mean, if that's the direction you want to go in and you want to get a million free pots and pans, be my guest. But it is not conflict of interest looms very large in the front of my brain. Well, Florence, you have an amazing reputation for integrity. Um, You're also known as a tough cookie, but you're also known as Flo Fab. Yes. And uh, that's the sort of touchy-feely part of you. Did you once actually have an advice column, too, where it was called Dear Flo Fab? You know, what happens to stuff like that (laughs) depends on who's the editor at at the moment. I always enjoyed that. (laughs) So we talked a little bit about childhood taste memories and this is going to be a very difficult question only because you've experienced so much but are there some adult taste memories that are so outstanding a restaurant a dish that you had somewhere in the world or cooked by someone you really admired I still remember the fricassee of shellfish that Gilbert Lacoz used to make at Le Bernardin and he did it mostly in France when they came to New York some of the shellfish that he adored and used, uh, whelks and some of these other little shelled creatures that Americans don't seem to <laughs> periwinkles eat. Periwinkles or... <laughs> well, periwinkles you got in a little dish with at the beginning of the meal. No, but the, he couldn't quite replicate it here. So mm. I remember it mostly from France. And I still remember it as being just so superb. And it's you know, sticks in my memory for that reason. Um, There are a few dishes like that. I'd rather not recommend or mention a New York restaurant. Sure. Because, just because. I totally understand. Let me say, there are so many, from a little pasta hole in the wall someplace to Chinese to you name it. So, um, but I do also remember... And I think the name was Nakashimaya, something like that, in Kyoto, where we had a lunch. And the restaurant was late in opening because the owner had been foraging. And he apologized for being late and came to the restaurant with a shopping bag full of what looked like weeds and (laughs) proceeded for a counter with about 20 seats to make this incredible incredible meal mm. at which he poured Japanese white wine to go with it. Yes. So you remember the food, the dish and the pairing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. These are two great, great examples. Nakashigaya, I think. I'd have to look it up, but I could find it. Mm. But anyway, it it was, you had to sit at the counter. And in most Japanese restaurants, you have to sit at the counter. Anyhow, and I love this idea of a bag of weeds, right? That really was, <laughs> is now the, it's here, right? Yes, that was, became absolutely. the future yeah, of yeah, really eating yeah. off the land, literally. Florence, what, what are your feelings about women um, in the food world and how things have changed for us? Well, you're talking about restaurants, products, or people. Because restaurants three and elements. Pe- well, let's see. Well, you really nailed it right there because women are so... I believe, more entrepreneurial than men. So they have started companies and become entrepreneurs and have products and businesses. They also have infiltrated fine dining, for sure. And uh, so any way that you'd like to respond well, to I that? Think, I think when, you, when it comes to restaurants, women are finally 
beginning to rise as they should have been for a long time. And it's a joy to see that. And I think when you're talking about women, you also have to discuss minorities because the field was was and still is certainly in many countries dominated by men. And that has to loosen up. It is, but there's a long, long way to go. But I think we all recognize that. As far as products go, I wish fewer women wouldn't waste their time on concocting some new snack bar because somebody in their family had an illness and couldn't eat anything else. I am so tired of these products, and most of them are not going to last. Most of them take a big investment and then take a big hit. Um, There are more productive ways, I think, than having some little company. Now, some people are extremely successful at this, and they've done very well. But I think that they've got to, there's a big shakedown coming. There's a, uh, all of these little niche products that, you know, if I must get a new water with a new flavor pitch <laughs> daily. I drink plain water, thank you very much. I don't want my water doctored up with whatever it is. Um, I tend to eat fairly plain cereal in the morning that has high that's high in fiber most of the granolas that cross my desk even if they're made with ancient grains or they're gluten free or something they have 2 grams of fiber which is nothing very little n- real nutrients and too much sugar and those are not standards that are commendable So I'm hearing that piece of it, but also you're uniquely positioned to say what you just said. But I'm also, Florence, hearing a little bit of compassion in what you're saying, that you really don't want women especially to take these kinds of risks. I mean, there have been companies that will deliver fresh produce to your door. And before I write about such a new company, I really take a deep breath because so many of them have gone out of business. And I can tell you there are any number of little storefronts selling XYZ that I've been tempted to write about and passed, and they've gone out of business. And places go out of business, you have to recognize, not just because the product is bad, and sometimes it is, but often it isn't, but because they aren't properly funded, they don't have the right marketing tool. And please, everybody doesn't need a publicist. And they will send out a release based on what the client tells them and do not do their homework. And to be told by a publicist, and I know this is coming from the client, that this is the first time XYZ has ever been done. And I will go back through the clips and find two articles from three years ago showing that XYZ has been done before. And moreover, I've written about it. (laughs) So don't give me this and go back to your client and say, look, this is not going to hold water. Well, don't you think also part of the frenzy is because food has just become, you know, the most important pastime business um, 
language even. And that was not the case when we started out so many decades ago, Florence. But thank God that you are still here doing this. I cannot imagine the food world without you. Uh, holding on to integrity, information, knowledge, and um, helping us see what's valuable. And it's really, really important. Uh, I want to talk about your new book, So you are the maven of products, and you also have just written your 13th cookbook, which is amazing. And I have everyone, I have a Florence Fabricant shelf at home. Yes, I do, with each one of your books. And one of my favorites was actually called, uh, is called Venetian Taste. And you are always so ahead of the curve. But I think it was among the first cookbooks to really focus on the food of Venice. And I just love the book. And it was designed by your daughter, Patty Fabricant. The book was. But the whole idea that came from Adam Tahani. Oh, he had that wonderful restaurant, Remy. Remy. And the rest, many of the recipes in the book were from uh, Francesco Antonucci, who was the chef at Remy, Remy at the time. Lovely book. And was in Venice with us. He was from Mestra, which is the mainland city opposite Venice. Mm. Well, one of the reasons it's so great to read your books, too, is that it's never just about a recipe. It's about context and history. And, um, you know, your amazing education had a lot to do with that. So what is this new book? This is coming out now. And it's your 13th. And Florence, it is beautiful. I'm just looking at the cover. And also designed by your daughter? Yes. It's called the Ladies Village Improvement Society Cookbook, which is worth a giggle, I suppose. (laughs) And the subtitle is Eating and Entertaining in East Hampton. The Ladies Village Improvement Society, otherwise known as LVIS, and sometimes misinterpreted as the first name of a iconic singer (laughs) performer (laughs) but that organization was founded 125 years ago Mm. a group of ladies in the village decided that somebody had to pay attention to whether the sidewalks existed or how the trees were doing and all of this kind of thing to keep the village beautiful Uh, so they founded this organization and they got a lot of support, and they've kept at it. And over the years, they've published over a dozen cookbooks, but they were mostly these spiral-bound recipes like a community from cookbook. Mrs. So-and-so. <laughs> um, they did one for the 100th anniversary that was a more polished effort, but still within a community cookbook kind of framework. And this one, they wanted to do something bigger and bolder and more professional. So they tapped me to to write the thing, and I sifted through recipes contributed by members. We, uh, there was a whole member, there's a whole cookbook committee from the organization, which now is 300 strong and headquartered in a wonderful vintage house on Main Street in East Hampton. And they uh, helped obtain recipes from local restaurants and shops, celebrities, and that kind of thing. And they helped a little with some of the testing as well. And uh, it was really a uh, a group effort in many ways. And uh, sifting through, I don't know how many hundred recipes. Uh, and did the recipes really span all the way back? Well, there were some that are vintage mm-hmm. recipes, yeah. Um 
And going back to the beginning of the conversation about vegan and vegetarian, I would imagine there are more of those now in this Well, book. there are a number of vegetarian recipes, but there are there is a vegan menu, which uh, never existed before in an <laughs> LDIS cookbook. Right, a sign yeah. of the times. And... Um, and it's a seasonal menu cookbook. So I the love first those. chapter Wonderful. is starts in the spring called When the Farm Stands Reopen. Ah, and great. The farm stands reopen at around the end of April, and they have very little to sell. And so the menu features stuff like uh, there's some asparagus, there's spinach, but there's not the bursting uh shells of uh, spilling over with peppers and tomatoes and all. that comes much later and in fact those products and it has not as much to do with global warming as with just the seasonality of the region last until well into october that you can buy corn and tomatoes because the sea takes longer to warm up mm. and the sea really the ocean really affects the weather and the temperature. So it takes a long time to warm up, which is why spring is late, but why it lingers longer. I mean, we've gone into the water on bay beaches, for example, as late as early October. So we call that the last gasp of summer, but it sounds like, do you think because of climate change, it's even getting Maybe lengthened? Maybe it's moving even more. It Tough looks- to say. Yeah, it looks like such a beautiful book. So it's called The Ladies' Village Improvement Society Cookbook, written by Florence Fabrican and designed by Patty Fabrican. And it looks like a great book to sit and read in bed. And Florence, you sit and read cookbooks in bed like the rest no. of us? No. No. <laughs> You're too busy writing them. I read you have them no at, time to read them. I read them at my desk because okay. oftentimes <laughs> I've got to write about them. No, in, interestingly about the title... The book was published by Rizzoli, and mm. the editor-in-chief of Rizzoli really wanted, because we toyed with titles that were more general or more Hamptons-ish, and he said, you know, everybody writes a Hamptons cookbook. This is very special, and he think, he thought the uniqueness of it would be a selling point. I certainly hope he's right. And it's coming out right now, right? April 7th. Perfect. It's already gotten a good review in PW, Publishers Weekly. Congratulations. That's wonderful. And so it'll come out in time for the first chapter to literally open with the farm stands opening. Florence, do you think your writing has changed over the years? My writing has changed? Your writing kind of writing style? Because I've made an observation. I don't know if it was conscious or deliberate. You know, I try... First of all, I think what's acceptable at the times has gotten much looser. And I am in a mix with people who write far better than I do and whose work I so admire and I strive to perhaps attain that level of turn of phrase. I struggle with it. And I think that over the years, I have become more relaxed and um, maybe pushing the envelope a little bit here and there. So I've noticed that. I um, I'm so glad I asked, and that's what you're saying. I think your writing is warm and funny, and I'm noticing more metaphor in it. But of course, 
when it comes to describing food. You have to go to metaphors sometimes, right? There's only so many words we have in the English well, language. How many times can you say delicious? Yeah. <laughs> We're disgusting. Now, there's a name for a new cookbook for you, Florence. That would be really lovely. Um, you mentioned people that you're inspired by. Who are some of them, past or present? The person who contributed, I think, the most to my career, and this may surprise you, was a publicist, Nikki Singer. Oh, wow, would she be thrilled to hear you say that, Lawrence. Tell me more. Nikki was amazing. Well, when I first started writing, and I was writing mainly for the Long Island section of the New York Times, which was the Sunday section that they published, Nikki Singer reached out to me with, I guess it was a product pitch or something like that, or an invitation to attend an event or something. But it was the first time a respected professional in the industry recognized me. And I felt for the first time I was, had become a grown-up. And that was the start of a long and deep friendship until Nikki unfortunately passed away about, I guess it was about 12 years ago, uh, from cancer. But we were very, very close. Close as personal friends, families were close. But at the same time, she was a superb publicist who understood the business, understood food writing, she opened doors for me in the wine world because she was doing a lot of work for Marvin Shankin. She really helped guide my career, I feel. And I think of her often. It's she so was really, beautiful. really, and we became extremely close friends. And she was really, really important to me. And, uh, you know, I could say Julia Child was an influence, and I loved Julia, and and we had a personal relationship and so forth. But a lot of people can say that. Um, Nikki. She and Julia may have influenced my cooking, but she didn't influence my career in the same way. Mm. So lovely, Florence. Thank you. You know, you've done so many things. Is there anything you haven't done yet, either in the food world or outside of it, that is Making you curious right now? I'd love to learn Greek. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Opa. And I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I have no doubt next time I see you, you're going to know at least a dozen words. That's very exciting, Florence. And uh, we do always ask for a legacy recipe. This is going so quickly. But what, how, well, it's funny about legacy recipe. It's either a recipe you want to be known for or possibly the last thing you want to eat. Um, so it could be either one. If you're wondering about my beautiful theme music, it's called The Garden, written and performed by award-winning singer-songwriter Audrey Appleby. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold, and check out everything I'm up to on my website at roseannegold.com. I mean, you've invented so many dishes and recipes and unusual uh, ingredient combinations. I'm so curious what your legacy recipe would be. This is a go-to recipe with a story. And as you can see, it's not a huge recipe. 
I'm, it's so funny. It's typed up, and it looks like it's about eight lines, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah, three ingredients. <laughs> the recipe is called Bronson's Baked Clams. And here's the story. When we first got married, and we had an apartment on the ground floor in a small building on the corner of Madison Avenue and 94th Street, <laughs> right after we moved in, there was a light shining into our bedroom window from the brownstone next door. And Richard decided he's going to complain. So he went around the corner to the brownstone and pressed the bell, and the name on the door was Bronson Binger. So he decided he's going to give Bronson Binger what for. (laughs) Well, he calls me about 40 minutes later and says, come on over, we're having a drink. We became fast friends with Bronson and Susan Binger ever since. (laughs) But one of the things Bronson would make, especially when they came out to our house in the Hamptons, were these clams. And what they were were little neck clams on the half shell with a scattering of scallions and a patch of bacon on top under the broiler. The bacon gets browned, you take them out and you eat them. And they are so good. It's sort of like Clams Casino for beginners. <laughs> but no, I've never, I haven't seen them done like that. And I serve, I still serve them all the time. Florence, this has gone so quickly. We must do it again. Um, okay. But it is, again, such a thrill to have you here. You have a career that, you know, we envy and admire. Uh, you have made such extraordinary contributions to the food world, and I know you're not stopping anytime soon. But let me say one other thing that has been so important for me, and that is that I'm married to a man who doesn't feel threatened by my career, who has always been supportive, flexible enough to do stuff even when he doesn't really want to, do we really have to go to that restaurant? Well, I got to cover it. And and is it really in Williamsburg? Yes, it's in Williamsburg. <laughs> and I don't know how many other men are like that. And uh, I couldn't do this without it. You are such a great team. And you've been married almost how long? 60 years. Wow. And we decided to get married when he knew, we knew each other for five days. Is that right? That's right. (laughs) Another story, another show. (laughs) He's a very special man and also lucky. Uh, But what a beautiful story, Florence. Thank you. So one last question. It's a question I ask everyone. What does One Woman Kitchen mean to you? Well, it's my kitchen for sure. Um, I can now say do the dishes because it's another way to wash your hands. (laughs) True. But, um, and he's helpful, but basically I make the decisions. I do most of the marketing. I find marketing. I find that the, the marketing drives the menu and I'm very, uh, efficiency minded. So unless I'm really forced to, I am not, happy going way, way out of my way to find some kind of obscure ingredient. Um, But at the same time, um, I'm very controlling and controlling as to what 
is in my kitchen, what I serve. I give a lot of stuff away. Um, and I could very nicely survive in a much less well-supplied environment. But certain aspects of the kitchen are important to me and uh, certain details also. For example, in our home in East Hampton, there's a central island, not a huge island, but it's a workspace. But I purposely had it made four inches lower than normal countertop. Much to the contractor's dismay, counters are 36 inches. I said, not mine, not this one. I mean, the others had to be the regular counters because of the height of appliances. But the fact is, I'm more comfortable at 32 inches if I am rolling pastry, for example. And that's what I have. And then I found out that the reason, one of the reasons for the 36-inch counter height is that back in the day when... I think it was GE or Kelvinator or one of those companies was developing appliances. The woman that they had helping design, do kitchen design, was very tall. That's, it's That's something that could be in my son's book. <laughs> yes, and, and Robert, the name of Robert's book is? User-friendly, how the hidden rules of design are changing the way we live, work, and play. You got a wonderful review. And he review. is a very good cook. Well, he learned from the master. So it sounds like your one-woman kitchen is truly yours, but also a place of great joy. And Florence, it has been a joy to have you on. And Florence, how can people connect with you? They Through send email me an email. Or... They can try phoning. Um, there's a whole email system at the Times. Um, this is great. I think people are really going to hear and appreciate what it means to be the ultimate professional, which you are. Again, Florence, such a joy to have you with me in my kitchen. I would like to thank Roseanne for this opportunity to tell these stories because I don't get much chance, and usually I'm doing the asking the questions, and uh, it's kind of fun to unload like this. <laughs> it's been great. Florence, thank you so much for this really inspiring conversation, and thanks to all of you for listening to Florence and Me. I'm Roseanne Gold. One Woman Kitchen is produced by Mouth Media Network. Follow me on Instagram at Roseanne Gold and check out everything I'm up to on my website at RoseanneGold.com. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network. Amplify and connect. Connect.